on the shoulders of dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games. Hello and welcome to On the Shoulders of Dwarves, a weekly podcast about role-playing games and the gamers who gained them. My name is Eran Aviram. My name is Uri Lifshitz. Hello. And today we'll discuss preparing a game. This episode is mostly for GMs, although as with anything, we think that every player is a GM in potential, so I suggest everyone should listen to this episode. And we tackle a topic which is... I think quite problematic because GM preparation, the whole concept of how I prepare to a game, is a very personal thing. It's like a walk method, maybe. It's a sort of thing that you need to discover what is the best for you. And there are many variations, many different ways, very vastly different from each other. So you and I will give our own point of views and how we prepare for different games because different games require different operations but before that Uri is there even something general that we can say about GM preparation of course there is there's tons of general things but one of the first and most important things we should discuss is should GM prepare in advance for a game because I know quite a few veteran GMs who would say, listen, I've been role-playing for 20 years. I don't need preparation. And I always answer, well, yes, you do. Unless you are both A, a very veteran game master, and B, a professional improviser that can handle pretty much everything that gets thrown your way. Unless you're both of these things, you should prepare. And as someone who is both of those things, I can tell you that even if you are, you should prepare in advance as well, because that will help raise the level of your game, regardless of what you're planning. Anything that you spend time thinking about beforehand and making some preparation for would have improved by that, even if it's just selecting a specific voice for an NPC, hmm. instead of just working in the spare of the moment. The, the grand villain could be this really softly spoken gentleman who's currently thinking of plotting your assassination. Or the same character could be this rough-edged person who is really angry at the moment and plotting your assassination. These would be two very different characters, and Selecting a few of these simple, simple things could up your level. The only GMs, in my opinion, who don't need to prepare are the GMs who don't care if their game is as good as they can do it. <laughs> Possibly better. I usually encounter the other problem, GMs who over-prep. GMs who rely so much on preparation that they think that most of their performance during the game, most of the playing experience will depend on how well they are going to prepare beforehand. And that translates in their head to how much time they are going to invest in it. If I mm. prepared for six hours, the game would be better than if I prepared for half an hour. And that's not necessarily true. 
That's a good point. And I think those people who plan way too much in advance would probably be able to put their mind at ease once they listen to a couple of disclaimers that I want to say regarding everything I said beforehand. Number one, you should always be ready to throw away everything you planned at a moment's notice. GM prep is like a battle plan. If you have one, it's awesome. It will improve your chances of success. However, it rarely survives an encounter with the players in the actual gaming session. That being said, a lot of prep is about how to throw away and what to do now. Mm -hmm. A lot of the prep is in the conceptual level, and we'll discuss some of that later, of course. Number two, and this is for all you GMs who say, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to run a game. I, I have to prepare. I need like four days in advance and I need all this spare time to work and I don't have that. So I probably better cancel the gaming session till I have enough time, blah, 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 blah. To all of you, I say, done is better than perfect. If you had very little time for prep work, you can still run a game. You can still run a great game. And you can listen to some of our episodes suggesting ideas of how to do exactly that. Yes. Of focusing on specific characters, focusing on a specific event. Just throw random confusing things at the character. You, you know, you, you enter a room, the room is all painted red with silver runes on the ceiling. And there's a half a dozen metallic balls on the floor. Now you have no idea what this room is. And the player is going to start speculating what that room is. So simply pick the best suggestion one of the players say and go with that. This requires like zero prep work and can keep players happy for hours because they were smart enough to figure out what that is. We have episodes about mystery plots and about pacing and about how to use details and about how to use the players when creating details, etc., etc. So yes, we have a lot of things that we've already said, a lot of tools that if you keep them in mind or maybe write down a few of them and keep them in front of you can help you master a session even if you come with very little prep or prep that is revealed to be useless because things change in the first five minutes. I also want to touch upon a point that I think is really important here and that's stress. GMs that think that preparation is key might stress themselves so much when they realize they are not as prepared as they thought they are, that they might ruin the fun for themselves, and it might actually ruin the fun for everyone, or at least make a session less fun than it could have been. It's really important that we are all aware, GMs and players alike, that prep, even for those of us who require it and actually do need three, four hours, six hours in advance, only contributes a certain part of the gaming experience and what we remember of it, especially the players. And that part, I would claim, is rarely even 50%. It's usually less. Maintaining a theme throughout the session, having dramatic moments in the session, having fun moments around the table, playing what the players are expecting to have in terms of genre, in terms of um dramatic plot developments, etc. All of these are super important parts as well. Mm -hmm. And I would continue that in a very simple statement. 
the players don't know what was planned. Right. This is one of those amazing things that you suddenly discover. In a seminar about delivering lecture before an audience, one of the lecturers said something amazing. He said, if you're making a mistake, you made a terrible mistake, you skipped like four of your slides, and you're thinking, oh my God, I made this terrible, terrible mistake. Everyone in the room are currently thinking, wow, what a huge mistake this guy just did. Well, in truth, no one knows. They don't know how many slides you have. They don't know the correct order. They don't know if you plan to jump ahead or jump backward. So, in most cases, if you've made a glaring, amazing, terrible mistake from everything you had planned in your mind, odds are that the player will never notice this. You wanted this to be the epic session cumulating everything that happened so far in the campaign. And the grand villain walk inside and they roll a natural 20 and you roll the natural 1 and he slipped on a banana peel and he hit his head and he's dead and in a coma. Fine. Odds are they may not even know that this was supposed to be the grand villain. And if he died so quickly they will probably speculate that this was planned in some way to reveal the fact that he was a dummy for an even greater evil, blah, blah, blah. Remember, most of the stress comes from you yes. telling yourself you didn't do things good enough. Which is why I recommend the simplest of things. When you think you are in the middle of making a mistake, when something isn't going according to plan, stop for a moment, take a deep breath, Stop, stop, stop in the middle of whatever it is you're doing. Just turn to the player and say, just a second. And think about, okay, um, how do I turn this in such a way that we can continue on to, toward whatever it is that I was planning generally? That really helps. <laughs> this, this moment of just stopping and recalculating, you know, the direction. That's true. Just taking the time to refocus yourself is something that, People don't do. I wonder why. Um... Because stress. Because stress is really powerful. It pushes aside our regular train of thoughts and instead makes us obsessively rethink the same things or refocus on things that aren't actually useful. Uh, it's, it's a horrible, useless thing. Agreed. We have nothing to fear but stress itself. Like... So, Huri, how do you prepare to a game? You specifically, what do you do? And maybe if someone listens to us now, they can take some pointers and try it themselves. Cool. So, first of all, my prep time is very much dependent on some key elements. Number one, is this a campaign session or a one-shot? Because they're very different in many, many ways. It's like a short story and writing a whole series of novels. If this is a campaign, I'm usually at ease because I know whatever mistakes I'm going to make, whatever weird uh, demon-like horns currently masquerading as fairy lords going to jump into my campaign because of a slip of the tongue, I could always, you know, minimize damage and in follow-up sessions, turn it around. In a one-shot, like a short story, there isn't a lot of wiggle room. You usually have a very limited amount of time, three, four, five hours. You're sometimes playing with people you don't know. 
So I tend to have a lot of prep time on one shot, and for a campaign session, usually a lot, lot less. Yes. yes. W- which is mind-boggling because, you know, a campaign <laughs> can go on for a year or two or three, and it would take a lot less stress for me to run a year-long campaign than running a single one-shot. Yes, it's weird. Because this is it. This is your chance to influence the players, to create something amazing. To, and, and once those four hours are done, that's it. So I, of course, cheat a lot <laughs> in, in doing that. And I will tell you in a minute how. Number two is, what's the game mechanics? Does this have a high crunch or a low crunch? And more importantly for me, is the adventure more GM build or more collaboratively build? Let me give an example. GM build is the state of mind in which I as a GM is responsible for the plot and for its advancement, for creating the, the plot and the location and the NPCs and everything around it. However, collaborative games, such as Fate, for example, are a lot easier because whenever something happens, and we have a brand new situation or a new encounter or a new NPC or everything, I can simply address the players saying, okay, help me create this setting. Help me create this specific encounter. Suggest to me what this NPC is thinking. So collaborative games are infinitely easier for me. I work best when I'm part of a group, part of a hive mind. And I enjoy it tremendously. Um, however, if I have a high crunch game that I'm supposed to build, and most of the one shots are these, mm. I again cheat as much as I can. More on that later. And the third key element is very personal for me, and that is do I actually have a specific meaning or a specific theme or an idea that I wish to convey to my player? via the game because if I do I will think a lot about how to pace this game what scenes I want to have in this game which I wouldn't feel comfortable giving up on what NPCs should have an impact on the character and which are just there for garnishing the story Now, I've mentioned that one-shots are less forgiving because you usually don't have the time or the ability to extend things. And if it's a mechanically heavy game, it's even worse. So I make life easier for myself with a few classic cheats. Number one, I try to prepare in advance so the mechanical side won't bother me. That means if I'm planning a session, I write down the stats block for the monsters or other NPCs So I try to get as much information as I can already written down by past me, by GM in downtime Uri, Mm. so that present me, GM in middle of a gaming session Uri, will have an easier time. As a general rule in life, I I highly believe in a maxim come from ancient, ancient uh, Japanese martial arts called Saya no Uchi. It means that the, the victory is inside the scabbard. So literally, it translates to try to get as many advantages before you actually go into battle. You have to go into battle, or in this case, into the gaming session, 
with everything organized in advance to have the easiest time doing the gaming session. So for me, having stats block pre-generated with all the boosts, all the character ability, if there's something I don't know, I make special lists and write down what those. And I prefer to write the general battle plans before any battle actually commence. So for example, if I have a wizard and I know, okay, this wizard has a shitload of spells. And usually if it was played by a player, that player would select the best spell for each occasion, etc., etc., etc. But I say, no, this is going to be really hard for me when I'm stressed in the middle of running a gaming session and have to keep all these different things in my mind. Mm-hmm. This wizard going to start off with a lightning bolt. Next, he's going to cast haste on everyone around him. And after that, he's going to magic missile his way until someone gets close to him. And then he's going to start stabby-stabby with his little knifey-knifey. And that, and I write that down next to the stats block of that wizard. And that's what he's going to do. And I can run this game really fast because I just, okay, so he cast lightning bolt. And sometimes a veteran player is going to say, ah, that's silly. He's only going to get one out of the six of us. Why is he using a lightning bolt? But, you know, they don't care. They will simply assume, Yeah. okay, so so obviously he doesn't have a fireball, so he's going to use his lightning bolt because it does the most damage. He's a wizard of lightning. He likes lightning. Yeah, he's yeah. a lightning dude. You know, he's light on his feet. He's ning on his heels. I don't know. But the point is, it would seem like a mistake that no one would ever notice, trust me. Yeah. Um, because I, I really, really love the spell Lightning Bolt, so I use it a lot. And in half the circumstances, it's not the right spell to use. But it saves me a shitload of time of decision-making. So this is an excellent cheat, which you simply use those spells which you love, and on occasion, you do... This is my next point. Reskin known abilities or monsters. So, for example, I absolutely love trolls. Love trolls. I also like goblins a lot, but trolls are my favorite. So pretty much half the encounters I ran were trolls or goblins, or trolls and goblins. But they were never actually trolls and goblins. I simply reused the stats and select new reasons for the regeneration ability or for whatever they are doing. Sometimes I take the goblins and I just, you know, reskin them as six foot, nine foot monsters who use these amazing bear like creatures to attack the characters. So the bear like creatures are trolls and the huge creatures are goblins. On occasion, they will, there will be an ambush, you know, with a bunch of fighters and a bunch of archers. The archers will be goblins and the fighters will be trolls. Of course, they will be described very differently. And on occasion, I would do things like, you know, switch off the regeneration ability or switch off some of the goblins' special feats or whatever. But this ability to reskin known monsters lets me, uh, quote unquote, ignore a lot of the mechanical aspects. And simply run an encounter the way I want it, especially if this encounter is a surprise encounter for me, if it's not something I planned for. 
you have the stat blocks that you already know, the monsters that you already like and love. And it's really easy to change something that you already know intimately, then go ahead now into the monster manual and search for something that is specific and fits this encounter exactly more than any other. Yeah, and, and this gives you a lot of room for being really, really creative. Uh, I had a game in which the characters were... There was an egg. There's sometimes an egg uh, created by a demon lord, blah, 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 and they break it. And I had no idea what was going well, to be inside that egg. As the egg hatched, I described it very vaguely. I said, this is an amalgamation of your worst nightmare with wings of fury and a bicycle thrown in. Th- this is what? how this creature looks like. Okay. Yeah, I, I wanted the, something cog-related ah, just awesome. to get it, uh, um, the, the emotions were in a bit of steampunk there. Now, obviously, there is no such monster in the, the monster manual, so I simply used a, a young red dragon. Sure. Sure, why not? So... No. You know, on occasion you have to think, okay, how do I explain its its wing attack? How does it burst of wind come out of everywhere? But then I said, you know what? It it doesn't matter. The, this is a game that takes place in the player's imagination. And if this is a creature of nightmares and the horrific appearance, the player is going to fill in the missing details like they do when you said the road leads south and you don't describe every pebble on the road trust your players trust their imagination and trust the human ability to insert meaning Mm. where there doesn't seem to be any having said all that let's talk for a moment about collaborative games in my current Fate Accelerated campaign, or the Good Society game I ran two weeks ago, I prefer to focus less on the plot in my prep work and instead to focus my attention on locations and NPCs. Now, maybe I will take a general idea or the barest of plots. In my last adventure, in my Unrelated Incidents campaign, all I knew was that I wanted a Romeo and Juliet type of story taking place between this, uh, you know, good-hearted knight and this black-hearted vampire, and I wanted them to fall in love, and I want to see what's happening. So I planned the backstory of the NPCs, and the location where I wanted this play, uh, certain scenes to take place you know, I, I wanted a balcony for a specific scene, etc., etc. <laughs> but I left it at that. Now, I, I've mentioned I wanted the balcony, so let me elaborate on that for a moment. I often try to plan for specific encounters or specific circumstances because these are moments in which the idea or the theme should be revealed or should be conveyed to the players. So I do plan these because I don't want to stutter even in the least in those most important scenes. For example, the the knight's declaration of love is not something I wanted to 
think before speaking it out loud for the first time because in front it's of an the important monologue and you wanted them to hear the whole thing exactly and i wanted it to convey the whole love story mm. in a really short amount of time because no one wants to listen to a long boring monologue yes everyone who went to ham to any shakespeare play is exempt from this statement of course but in a play you are a passive viewer in a game where you're an active participant you don't want to sit down and listen to endless rambling monologues yes so in order to shorten that time i pick my word carefully and more importantly the intonation and the emotion i put into this the, this is a whole different story regarding voice acting. There's a huge difference between saying, well, uh, the knight approaches you and say, I love her with all my heart and I will do anything to save her. Instead of, the knight approaches you and he says with a heavy heart, I love her. I, I, I would do anything to save her. You convey a lot more meaning in one than the other. So it saves a lot of time. So I do try to plan for those specific cases where it's important. But in all honesty, I prefer, not just because it's um, simpler from time prep wise, I prefer to create these moments with my players in collaborative games. Because what I love most about role-playing games is a sense of wonder. And I know how to create that for my players but in collaborating with them and creating these scenes with them I create this sense of wonder for me mm. I as a GM like to be surprised by what's happening and it's very hard to do when you're the GM and you're supposed to know everything so collaborative games give me just that also, on a side note, in more mechanically heavy games, creating circumstances and NPCs and monsters with your players is amazing because they will allow themselves to be so much rougher and unforgiving and vicious toward their own characters than I could ever hope to be. Because they know. They know what's going to hurt their character, and they know what's going to hurt them. I can highly recommend, of course, City of Mist, a game with a lot of collaborative uh, fiction. It's powered by the apocalypse, uh, meets, meets fate. So it, uh, it's everything that you've just said. And also, I'll come back again to Mistborn adventure game that I've talked about a few weeks back, a few episodes back, and haven't talked a lot about it since because unfortunately I'm not playing it, but I would love to, which again takes a lot from fate in the collaborative aspect and also in that that you let the players create stuff that harm their own characters. Because as a player, when, when I'm a player, I would love to see my character go through interesting, dramatic stuff. I would love to see them hindered by things. I want the system to allow me to, to do that to myself. Well, to, not to myself, to my character. And see what happens. So that's how you prepare a game. Mm -hmm. How do you? Differently. <laughs> <laughs> First, let's talk about how I prepare one-shots. 
Uh, I used to run a lot of one shots in conventions. These days, I'm usually at um, a stand or an exhibitor booth or something like that with up to four players. But I love running games in conventions. And for the first few years of running, I was exactly what you described. I used to go through the same, oh my God, I need to now prepare a lot of things. And I had to prepare a lot of things and make sure that I know all of the scenes of what happens to them, etc. These days, I approach con games very differently. And a lot of it is thanks to Aviv Manoach, our third dwarf, the technical dwarf. Aviv... <laughs> when he runs in conventions, runs only games that are collaborative and created on the spot. Things like lasers and feelings, which is very nice, very short, very sweet. Things like Dungeon World, which he translated to Hebrew. Things like Masks, which again, he translated to Hebrew. That's the sort of games that he enjoys playing and they work marvelously in conventions, including character creation. It's a part of the of the whole deal. You sit down, you create characters together for half an hour, you play the rest for three hours. And good for him, but I don't play Powered by the Apocalypse games in conventions, usually. Instead, I go for other things, like I use the dice from Genesis, which is which are the same dice that Star Wars have, and the same dice that Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay used to have on the third edition. Which is an excellent mechanic. It's a, it's a brilliant mechanic, because, again, it creates the story for you. And I know how to handle the dice very well. I know, for example, if you're going to tell me I want to jump and I say, well, okay, but it's a hard jump. I know what to do. And if you then say, but I have this pole and I jump with the pole, I know what to do. I know how to use the dice in a way that will allow us to create any story and then roll the dice and see what happens and where the story goes. So I feel very comfortable with them. So these days, when I go to a convention and I run a game on the spot, out of nothing or whatever, I use these dice. And the only thing that I really need is a general idea of what to do. I'll create the rest of the scenes during the game, probably. I have a good sense of pacing. I've developed one through lots of years of running convention games. And character sheets. I really must have character sheets. And I think it's the most important part of prep for one shot, at least for me. Good character sheets will run you through the entire game. You put on them everything that you want the players to know and have. You put on them just enough stuff for them to play with. And then everything else erupts out of the dice or whatever during the game. But by the way, it's the same thing with... A dungeon world which provides you character sheets that are very elaborate and have a lot of interesting things on them and then throughout the game you just use these things in interesting ways so for example i always make sure that one character has a reason to um, have some sort of relationship with another and one character is the outsider and one character has a motivation that is very fierce forwardy that is they will always push forward probably and etc etc i i make sure that there are enough interesting people around the table for the people around the table to play interesting people and interesting motivations oh yes 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 which brings me to the next point because motivation really is the key for everything i think when i run campaigns uh as you said it requires less prep and then you segmented it, Uri, by saying that the, the amount of prep relies on 
how much crunch there is and if it is GM build or collaborative build, I want to add another axis, one that I need to think about a lot, and that's how open the world is, how open the story is. So for example, when I play 50 Fathoms, which is the current game that I'm running, it's a very open world. I need to basically read uh, maybe a page, <laughs> maybe two, <laughs> and before every session where, they, where the character currently are and where they said they are going to go during the next session. And uh, that's it. Why? Because 50 Fathoms is really simple. The book has maybe two, three paragraphs about each location. It's really easy to flip for the book and find the location that you need. So if the players decide to go that way instead of this way, you can just get to that place in like two flips, three flips, and you know what's there. And in a moment's reading, because really it's like two or three paragraphs at most, you know what's going on. That's part of the charm of 50 Fathoms. That's part of the charm of a product that provides you an open world and is clever enough to help you run it by being short, by being uh, fluffy and evocative, etc. On contrast, The Enemy Within, a game that I ran a few years back and is probably the best campaign so far Muna players ever had, is a very heavy, very uh, NPC-based sort of adventure. Three big adventures, one after the other. Uh, the first one is very, I don't want to say railroady, but... There's things happen at day one, things happen at day two, things happen at day three, etc. <laughs> and it all culminates with a big event at a zoo. And the second, <clears throat> which is cool, by the way, and it's awesome. The second adventure is somewhere else. And instead of having specific days, it has specific people and organizations that want some things and a task that needs to be done. And there are several ways to do it. And the third part is a big mess in the big city you can call it and all of them play a bit differently but the main thing is still the main thing there's a large conspiracy with a huge big important npc behind the scenes and lots of smaller conspiracies going on and it's really important for me to keep tabs on everything that's going on so before each session i read not only like two or three pages about and these are big pages 50 fathoms is, is small it's a small book these are full a4 pages about what's going on where they currently are to remind myself, even if they didn't move anywhere and they are, they are not going to move anywhere else because each of these adventures is in a specific city and specific places in the city and they are not going to, I don't know, jump on a ship and sail to a different island. Unlike 50 Fathoms. They stay here, but there are so many things happening here. There are so many people and they have motivations and specific methods to achieve these motivations that I have to know and keep in my mind this pattern of conspiracy. So I have to reread it before every session. Not a lot, because as long as the sessions are one after the other, you know, like a week or two weeks, I remember most of it. That the charm of preparing for a campaign. You've already prepared for the last <laughs> session. So you you push the preparation forwards on and on and on. But because it's a game where I can sleep up and a huge part of a conspiracy might just disappear into the ether because I forgot about it or didn't made the orcs kick the door in the right moment because I just didn't remember there are orcs around. Th that's, that's the sort of thing that I have to avoid. So I have to reread 
you know, the information about the enemies, just who they are, what they want, uh, the information about this temple, who's in this temple, why they are there, etc. It's amazing how sometimes you GM and there is a moment in which you, your mind is distracted and you do this tiny thing and the campaign shifts. I once ran a campaign, and it was very important for me. The, the players played low-level thugs in a criminal organization. And it was really important for me that there will be no death. Mm. There won't be killing other people in that campaign. Because that's, that felt for me like something, you know, that, that big-time criminals do. And, you know, the smaller ones, there, you know, you don't kill people. That's, that's get you into real trouble. And... We were playing a session, and, and I was thinking of my other campaign, which was a D&D campaign with a lot of gore and everything. And one of the guys simply he threw a punch, and he rolled really high damage. And I said, fine, you, you, his head just explodes. <laughs> Not explodes, but you know, <laughs> you, you, his head pops out of his uh, neck and rolls into the alley, and he falls down. Uh, what do you do next? And then he stared at me like, you know, God, I, and he's mumbling as his character. Oh my God, I just killed someone. And, you know, inside my mind, I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? I've been, I've been really keeping the violence level low in this game for four months. Mm. And I just <laughs> fucked it up. And, well, fuck it. It's, maybe it's time. Apparently, it's time. Apparently, it's time. Yeah. The dice wanted this to happen. It happened. Realigning everything, moving forward. Completely true. Now, about this moving forward thing, I see three main uh, tools that ever since I discovered them have become the most integral part of my toolbox as a GM. And these are the tools. First, think in fronts and motivation. Motivation is what does this person want? What does this monster want? And a front is a concept taken from Dungeon World. Motivation is taken from Dungeon World as well, by the way. I mean, everyone has motivation, but as a mechanical aspect, as a thing that is an integral part of the description of an NPC or a monster, I saw it for the first time, I think, in Dungeon World. I will give a link to Dungeon World in the show notes because I want everyone to read the section about fonts and it's for free dungeon world is available for free fonts are generally speaking motivations for plot a font can be something like the conspiracy it begins with an agent a person or a thing it can even be the earthquake so it can be nature whatever Something that is going to make everyone's lives worse by continuing to exist. You start with a very general idea, what they want to achieve, what this thing is trying to become. And then you segment it into three, four, five, six, however, steps as you'd like to have. So, for example, the conspiracy might want to overthrow the king. That's the end result. That's the thing that they are aiming to have. A new democracy, let's say. It's a conspiracy that wants to have a democracy. The first step is probably gathering in rooms and deciding on a plan. 
The second step is probably figuring out how to assassinate the king and gathering intel. Third step is probably assassinating the king. We might even put another step before that, finding an assassin, hiring an assassin. Step four is probably something like overthrowing the monarchy during a single night of flames and disasters in the palace. And then step five is institute a new council. Mm-hmm. I think of everything as a font now. Everything is somewhere along the line of turning from something small into the worst thing that could happen or the most influential thing that could happen. And the most important thing about font is they change. So when the session ends... They change. I, I think it's they advance, they progress. They, advance, they advance from stage to stage, mm. but they also change. Because at the end of a session, or one would say at the middle of a session, when something changes in a drastic way, you stop for a moment. At the end of a session, you stop and look at your fonts and say, okay, how do these fonts react to what happened? Because they might change. If someone, for example, kills the assassin, let's say the heroes kill the assassin before this horrible person managed to kill the king, then the next stages will have to change. The end goal probably won't. But how we reach that end goal will have to change. And how will it change? Well, let's go back and look at the previous stages and at the thing itself. We said it's a conspiracy. We said that they have a motivation. I don't know what the motivation is. We haven't written it down in this example. But we should, when we begin a font, have a clear motivation and a general idea of who these people are and what they are capable of doing. Because then when the font changes will have a concept in our head or at least an idea of where does it go to? Where is it leaning toward now? What sort of direction it's going to advance forward into now that it can't advance in the direction that we've planned for before? The next thing that I really like, that I really keep using is the willingness to postpone. I must be willing to keep things pushed forward into the future. And by that I mean the PCs have encountered a conspiracy in the city and they know who the person at the head of the conspiracy and they arrive at her mansion and they are invited to her mansion for a dinner. This is a thing that actually happened in The Enemy Within. And the thing is, I have no idea what this person wants. I don't know. She's the head of this conspiracy and... For some reason, there isn't actually an end goal for them in the book of The Enemy Within. So I need to invent one. And I had no idea. It's something that I tried to think about as, as a GM before the game. But I told to myself, you know what? This is actually not that important. It's way more important to have an interesting mansion because the players are going to run around in it. It's more important to have an interesting voice, as you said before, for this NPC, because the players are going to interact with her. What she's aiming for is not that important, because and that's the main thing, this conspiracy was not a big deal of the entire campaign. It was just there. <laughs> it was sort of on the sidelines of the story. So it doesn't really matter what they want, do they? Because she's going to die by the end of this night anyway, <laughs> and whatever it is that they planned, it's going, they're going to foil it. And here's the thing, here's the, the problem that I encountered. The players did want to know what she was planning. 
eventually, sometime. I don't remember the specific, but they wanted it. And I had to postpone. And it was very easy because she didn't tell them. She would never tell them. And when they managed to make her almost tell them, a demon exploded out of her or something like that because she was raising demons. But that was a cheat. They would later need to find the diary in which she written down her entire plan because they would feel cheated if they never discover what it was that they, she wanted. They must know. They must have. I saw it in the faces. I saw it in. I heard from the mouths. <laughs> they wanted to know what was happening, but I had no idea. So she would die or whatever, and the diary would be encrypted or there will be only parts of it. Whatever, I need to postpone. They will get something that will be enough for them for now. Ah, we have the answer. It's in our hands. It's this diary. We can't read it yet. But it's not something that we actually need to care about right now because we have it. We just need to find out where the cipher is. And they never did because it didn't matter. So they were satisfied for that session. And that was enough. We never had to go back to that because by next session, the main story again took prominence. And this thing was, it was clear to them that this NPC and this organization was just a sideline. And they didn't really care what they wanted because, as we said, it isn't really important. Awesome. Everyone is happy. I didn't need to work hard to find the motivation and think about the hierarchy of the organization. No one cares. I just need to be willing to make sure that they get a thing that will lead them to whatever it is that they find important sometime in the future. So there's a boot. It's a very important boot. It will lead you. It's a clue. It will lead you to whatever it is that you want, but not this session. We discussed this in our episode about pacing, but I don't think that we talk about this scale of things. It's really helpful for me when I prepare games because I cut by half the amount of things I actually need to prepare if I'm just willing to not deal with them this session right now. Finally, I want to bring my wife's game. She designed a game in Savage Worlds for us to play. It was, I think, the second game she ever ran. The first she ran was Edge of the Empire, and she walked, I kid you not, I think dozens of hours to create that game. She wrote dialogue for the characters, for the NPCs. She wrote descriptions that she then read to us. She made sure that every scene has everything she needs, etc., etc. She worked very hard. It was a mini campaign. It was three sessions. The second game she planned took her probably quarter of that time because you know she was more confident now she knew what to do she knew what not to do she knew what she is capable of which is very important for a gm when you realize you don't need to read uh, when you know what you know and know what are your strong points yes and you can very easily say okay i'm gonna fix this problem using my strong points rather than preparing for an hour to face my weak points Exactly, exactly. So that second game she ran was uh, based on London Falling, a book by uh, Paul Cornell. It was a one-shot. It was very nice about a group of police officers in present-day London that discovered the world of the unnatural and 
supernatural that is behind the scene etc and she again prepared in advance quite a lot scene after scene all of the NPCs, what they will do, generally speaking. She went with the motivation route, but also had some pre-planned scenes. And it was a joy to watch, because I saw how she wrote down only what she needed, compared to previous time when she wrote down everything she thought she might need. Wonderful. It's amazing to watch someone gain levels at something they love. Completely, completely true. So, so I think it's really important to play more, to, to GM more and different stuff, different styles. Just run more games and you will realize what you are good at. Try different things and you'll see that you don't need this, but you need a lot of this. And always remember... The players don't know you did a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. That's basically it, I think. I have just one last thing that I need to say about preparing. When we ran X-Crawl, which is basically dungeon crawling as a sport, as an extreme sport, I think we talked about it um, when we just started the podcast. I, I ran it about a year ago when we did it. Uh, the only preparation I did was reading the rooms of the dungeon again before every session and reading the rules in the rulebook that correspond. Like, for example, if there's an invisible enemy, I need to know everything about invisible enemies. If there's underwater combat, I must know everything that's going on with underwater combat because it's a tactical challenge. The whole point of X-Crawl was this is a sport and sport need to be fair and I as the GM need to be the fairness. <laughs> Indeed. So there you go. That's how we prepare games. But Yeah, how, how do you prepare? Yeah. We'll, we'll love to hear from you if you have any other special tips. Would love to hear those. Because each of us has different styles and different ways in which we prepare games, uh, we can learn a lot from each other. I would love to hear how you prepare for any kind of game. The game you're currently running, what's the most interesting prep work that you remember doing for a previous game you ran, whatever, really. Um, if you want to hear more of us, you can do so at dwarfcast.net. You can send us the emails that we asked from you right a moment ago to show at dwarfcast.net. You can also contact us at Dwarf Podcast on Twitter and on the Shoulder of Dwarves group on Facebook. And remember, we are also in your dreams. And now it's time to take the load off. This is the part of the show where we talk about what happened in our own role-playing lives. And I will start by saying I don't want to recommend a specific roleplay or talk about a specific roleplay, rather than talk about what I do in my downtime where I'm not playing. Because in the last week I've been reading a book. That book is called Forging Hephaestus. It is by Drew Hayes. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I am madly in love with this author. <laughs> He is so good at world building that it is ridiculous. He also have a whole series devoted basically to role playing. It's called the uh, Spells, Sword, and Stealth. The first book is called NPCs. In the way in which he creates a world in which role play games take place that makes sense 
is beyond me. And in the current book that I'm reading, Forging Hephaestus, he creates a world where there are superheroes and supervillains. And it's a world that makes sense. It's not one of those books where you finish reading and then say, yeah, but if they have that kind of technology, then it doesn't make sense that the world still look the way it does. Or, you know, it, it's very much realistic in the way that everything has its explanation of why it is so, even though the world is so vastly different from our own due to the existence of superheroes and supervillains. I think every GM or aspiring author should read one of those books because Ooh. it's a masterclass in how to implement the rule of, okay, if this is true, what else <laughs> is true in this world? Sure. If I have superheroes, what else must be true? or Otherwise, this world will not make any sense. So this is, a, I think, less of a book recommendation and more of an author recommendation, but still highly recommended. Excellent, and I might try it then. I don't get to play anything these days because I'm working on my Kickstarter coming November 20. Woohoo! Oh, and we will have an Ask Us Anything episode uh, where in which Avivor and I will answer your questions uh, in this podcast, it will be about a week into the Kickstarter after we gather some questions. But if you have some, feel free to send us anyway, anytime already, either to show at dwarfpodcast.net or to comics at up com. Also, of course, we have a Discord for Crystal Heart, so you can join that as well. We answer questions there too. Again, highly, highly recommended. That was us. What do we do now, Uri? Well, we usually end the show with everyone, a participant, saying goodbye in their own native tongue. <laughs> so, later on! On the shoulder of dwarves is shared under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial form. The intro and outro are taken from Silly Fun by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution Free. Find us at dwarfcast.net and follow us on Twitter or Facebook.